bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, December 21st, 2010. In this week's podcast, I'll summarize what was included in the final tax extenders package that was approved by Congress last week and signed into law by the President. Then, I'll share information from two reports about the new market tax credit program, including projections for job creation based on the new two-year extension of the credit. Next, I'll discuss a memo released by the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee that addresses concerns, concerns that were raised by a recent IRS notice regarding the definition of taxes and bond issuance. In this week's Historic Tax Credit segment, I'll preview the Historic Tax Credit content in this month's issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. And finally, turning to renewable energy, I'll share an announcement regarding public land that the government has deemed to be best suited for solar development in the West. If you're ready, let's get started. As most listeners know, on Wednesday, December 15th, the Senate passed the tax extenders bill by a vote of 81 to 19. The, the bill then went to the House, where after a brief procedural delay, it was approved on December 16th by a vote of 277 to 148. The package was then signed by the President on Friday, December 17th. The bill extends current tax rates for all income levels, extends unemployment insurance benefits, and temporarily reduces Social Security taxes. The package also includes a one-year extension through 2011 of the Section 1603 Cash Grant in lieu of Energy Tax Credit Program. This is welcome news to the renewable energy community, which has projected that the extension could create 45,000 jobs in 2011. The bill extends new market tax credits for two years as well, the two years being 2010 and 2011, at a level of $3.5 billion each year. Community development officials have been hoping for this extension all year, and while they were excited to see the extension, they were also disappointed that the extension was not at the higher hoped-for level of $5.0 billion. The Community Development Financial Institutions Fund is still expected to make an announcement in January of the successful applicants in the 2010 application round albeit with $3.5 billion to allocate as opposed to five. CDFI Fund Director Donna Gambrell is scheduled to speak at our New Market Tax Credit Conference next month in San Diego, so I do encourage you to register for the event if you haven't already signed up. You can get more details at www.novaco.com events. Now, the tax extenders package also extended the increase in the rehabilitation tax credit for property place and service through the end of 2011 in the Gulf Opportunity Zone. This is good news for the historic preservation work that's still being done to help the area recover from Hurricane Katrina. In his History in the Hill column, John Leith Tetral will examine what this extension will mean for the GO Zone. That column will appear in the January 2011 issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. The extenders bill also includes extension for one year through 2011 of the place and service date for GO Zone local housing tax credit properties and an extension for one year through 2011 of bonus depreciation for GoZone property. Now, prior to the final Senate vote, Senator Mary Landrieu did secure a promise from Senate Finance Committee Chairman Max Baucus and Republican Whip John Kyle 
to further extend the place and service deadline for GoZone LHCC properties to January 1, 2013 in a tax technical corrections bill early next year. The final bill by Congress did not, that's right, it did not include an extension of the Section 1602 LIHTC Cash Grant Exchange Program. It also did not include additional funding for the Section 48 Cap C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit, nor an extension of the Build America Bonds Program. It also did not include a provision that we had discussed in prior podcasts that would have allowed the New Market Tax Credit to offset the alternative minimum tax. It also did not include any funding for the National Housing Trust Fund. The bill did also include 100% expensing for property place and service after September of 2010 and before the end of next year, and then 50% expensing thereafter. For more details on that, I would encourage you to go to our website, www.taxcredithousing.com. Please tune in next week to hear what lies ahead for those provisions that were not passed in the tax extenders bill, as well as other legislative priorities for the low-income housing tax credit New Markets Tax Credit, Renewable Energy Tax Credit, and Historic Tax Credit. In New Market Tax Credit news, last week the New Market Tax Credit Coalition released a report about the New Market Tax Credit Program, and that report found that, since its inception, the New Market Tax Credit Program has brought nearly $50 billion and about 500,000 jobs to distressed communities throughout the nation. The report was based on examination of 4,000 New Markets transactions dating back to 2003. According to the coalition's analysis, the New Market Tax Credit has leveraged $8 of private investment for every dollar of cost to the federal government, thereby costing taxpayers less than $12,000 per job created or retained. The coalition projects that the two-year extension of the tax credit that was recently passed by Congress will bring at least $25 billion in investment and about 270,000 jobs to targeted distressed areas. Based on the same research, the coalition estimates that the two-year extension of the New Market Tax Credit will result in the creation of retention of 270,000 jobs at a cost of the government of less than $7,000 per job. The extension is also expected to leverage $18 billion in financing from other public and private sources at an actual cost to taxpayers of only $1.8 billion over 10 years, that estimate being based on Joint Tax Committee calculations. A copy of the report can be found online at www.newmarketscredits.com. More information about the New Market Tax Coalition can be found online at www.nmtccoalition.org. Also last week, the Urban Institute posted a report called A Literature Review to Inform Evaluation of the New Market Tax Credit Program. The 114-page report reviews literature on community and economic development programs, including the New Market Tax Credit, to identify key evaluation concepts, questions, methods, and measures, as well as to highlight significant challenges inherent in evaluating these programs. The report was created in preparation for designing an evaluation of the New Market Tax Credit Program. The Community Development Financial Institution, CDFI, fund contracted with the Urban Institute to complete an evaluation of the New Market Tax Credit Program by 2011. The evaluation is supposed to address the fundamental question of whether or not the program is, in fact, doing what was intended. Now, the evaluation is also supposed to inform important policy-relevant questions. Questions such as, how and in what manner is the program affecting the flow of new private capital to low-income communities? 
with what rates and terms are businesses or organizations in those communities obtaining capital, where, in what time frame, and how is the capital invested to achieve community revitalization objectives, what outcomes are associated with those investments, how efficient are NMTCs with respect to those outcomes. Now, in 2007, the Urban Institute did an exploratory study that was the first step in this design process for evaluating the outcomes of the New Market Task Credit Program on a more extensive scale. The 2007 study examined a sample of five NMTC projects that used tax credits allocated earlier in the program's history. The resulting report described the characteristics, evolution, financial arrangements, and anticipated community impacts of those projects. In addition, that study allowed the Urban Institute to explore the strengths and limitations of using in-depth, semi-structured telephone interviews as a means for gathering process and outcome information about New Market Tax Credit-supported projects. According to the CDFI Fund, a similar approach based upon interviews with key project actors and stakeholders, will be used as one means for generating data for the more comprehensive evaluation of the New Market Task Credit Program to be completed in 2011. A copy of this report can be found online at www.newmarketscredits.com. In the local housing tax credit news, last week the California Debt Limit Allocation Committee, SIDLAC, issued a memo regarding Internal Revenue Service Notice 2010-81. As listeners may recall, IRS Notice 2010-81 provides guidance on the determination of when governmental bonds, including private activity bonds, are considered issued for the purposes of calculating their interest tax exemption or federal interest subsidy eligibility. We discussed the notice in the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast on December 7th. You can hear a full discussion about the notice by downloading the December 7th podcast from the archives at www.novaco.com podcast. Essentially, while the ruling addressed the Build America Bonds program, it has much broader implications for local housing tax credit finance projects using a drawdown bond structure. Some industry experts believe the ruling raised a question about whether or not state bond volume cap may be lost with respect to the undrawn portion of any drawdown bonds. Part of the uncertainty and concern is whether IRS Notice 2010-81 will affect the administrative approach taken by state housing agencies such as SIDLAC. Which brings us back to the memo released last week. In the memo that's dated December 15th, SIDLAC says that various bond councils have advised the agency that for private placement issuances employing a drawdown funding structure, qualified initial draws will no longer constitute a full issuance of bonds, nor will a qualified initial draw fulfill a statutory deadline to issue for IRS purposes. SIDLAC said it's currently in the process of reaching out to the IRS for additional guidance related to this matter. The SIDLAC memo notes that IRS Notice 2010-81 offers no effective date and thus appears to take effect immediately, potentially affecting the tax status of numerous in-progress and soon-to-close bond issuances nationwide. However, SIDLAC notes that the IRS has indicated that they may provide some additional guidance on how such transactions will be treated under the notice requirements. In the meantime, SIDLEC's memo says that it is vitally important that any 2010 applicant who believes that the recent changes brought about by the IRS notice may negatively impact a past bond issuance contact the SIDLEC office to discuss the situation. Depending on the nature of the transaction and the timing of the additional guidance, SIDLEC says it may be necessary to supplant the loss of expiring 2010 or prior year allocation 
not already, already used in a qualified draw this calendar year. As written, the current IRS notice may necessitate revisions to both the SIDLAC regulations and the application requirements for all future private placement transactions. The memo advises interested parties to visit the SIDLAC website and or subscribe to the SIDLAC email distribution list to receive additional information as it becomes available. Never Gatkin Company will continue to monitor this matter and will post updates online at www.taxcredithousing.com and discuss them in future podcasts and in the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. This issue will also be a hot topic at our Loan Housing Tax Credit Conference being held in Miami in January. The conference dates are Thursday and Friday, January 20th and 21st. I hope to see you there. For details about the conference, go to www.novoco.com events. As many listeners are aware, when a developer uses historic tax credits to renovate a building, the National Park Service has the final say on all site improvements. This includes any changes to the building itself as well as those to the surrounding grounds. Now, exterior additions to historic buildings can include floors added to the top of a building, a new structure connected to the side or rear of the building, or even a new freestanding structure or parking lot. These exterior additions, of course, do not count as qualified rehabilitation expenditures for historic tax credit purposes. However, a poorly designed addition can cost a developer his or her tax credits on the actual historic building. An article in this month's issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits offers tips for how developers can work with the National Park Service to create a building addition that serves a modern purpose without disrupting the site's historic character. Although the Park Service reviews proposed additions on a case-by-case basis, the Park Service does provide basic guidelines for developers. In August, the Park Service issued a revised version of Preservation Brief 14, entitled New X-ray Additions to Historic Buildings, Preservation Concerns. This 16-page brief serves as a general guide for developers who are interested in adding to an historic building's exterior. In the article, we explore the Park Service's brief, as well as some tips from experienced historic developers and advisors. The article is featured as a complimentary preview of the December 2010 issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. You can find the article online at www.novaco.com journal. If you have questions about historic tax credits, I'd urge you to call my partner, Tom Bosha at 216-298-9000 or my partner, Charlie Ruda, at 617-330-1920. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, on December 16th, Secretary of the Interior Ken Salazar, along with Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu, announced a comprehensive environmental analysis that's identified proposed solar energy zones on public lands in six western states, areas that are considered most suitable for environmentally sound, utility-scale solar energy production. The detailed study, known as the Draft Solar Programmatic Environmental Impact Statement, was compiled over the past two years as part of efforts to create a framework for developing renewable energy. Secretary Salazar said the analysis will help renewable energy companies and federal agencies focus development on areas of public lands that are best suited for large-scale solar development. He said the process will help stakeholders cite solar projects in the right places and reduce conflicts and delays at later stages of the development process. The Draft Solar Programmatic Environmental Impact Statement, or PEIS, assess the environmental, social, and economic impacts associated with solar energy development 
on Bureau of Land Management Administered Areas in the states of Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, and Utah. More information can be found online at www.doi.gov. In other renewable energy news, the United States could attract $342 billion in clean power project investments over the next decade, according to a report released last week by the Pew Charitable Trust. The Pew report found that the United States is among the three G20 members with the most to gain by implementing strong clean energy policies. The report is called Global Clean Power, a $2.3 trillion opportunity. It examined projected private investment in wind, solar, biomass, small hydro, geothermal, and marine energy projects. The underlying data for the report was compiled by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. The report modeled three policy scenarios to determine future growth through 2020. Number one was the business-as-usual scenario. Under this scenario, projections assumed no change from current policies. Number two was the Copenhagen scenario. Under this scenario, projections assumed policies are adopted to implement the pledges made at the 2009 international climate negotiations in Copenhagen. And number three was the enhanced clean energy scenario. Here, projections assumed maximized policies designed to stimulate increased investment and capacity additions are enacted. In the U.S., Total attractive clean power project investment is projected to be, based upon these models, $245 billion by 2020 under the business-as-usual model, $259 billion by 2020 under the Copenhagen model, and $342 billion by 2020 under the enhanced clean energy model. Now You can review the entire report, including country profiles, interactive graphics, and video, online at www.pewenvironment.org slash cleanenergy. That's www.pewenvironment.org slash cleanenergy. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. It'll be the last one for calendar year 2010. Next week's podcast will be a special podcast. We're going to review what occurred in 2010, and more importantly, We're going to look ahead to 2011 and make some predictions about what's in store. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.